Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Person, he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture the and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, To all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together into the supper of the great. God. Amen. This evening I'd like, this is part 17b, and usually whenever I add a letter I try to keep the same title, but it just being inappropriate because we already talked about the marriage supper of the Lamb really last week, and I'm not really talking about that this week, and so I'm calling this just simply the second coming. Alright, the second coming. Uh, it's B just because we're still in Revelation 19. So the second coming of the Lord. Amen. This is what people are some are looking for it. I know as a church, we're looking for the rapture. But the finality of finality is when he comes and sets his foot on the Mount of Olives one more time, the same place that he ascended from. Amen. It brings all things to a culmination. Father, I love you right now, Lord. I thank you, Jesus, for those that have gathered together here this evening in this place. I pray, oh, Lord, that you're able to help us. God, your word, your word, your word. God, the scripture says that it's profitable for doctrine and reproof Lord Jesus if that's the case then even the scriptures that are laid out in the book of Revelation are profitable unto us God for doctrine repute, reproof and rebuke so on and so forth for our individual lives help us Lord to receive them as such in the lovely name of Jesus Christ I pray amen and amen everybody say amen you may be seated <clears throat> the second coming again last week our main focus was the marriage the marriage of the Lamb. And so this week our main focus is the second coming. Among other things that may involve that, uh, namely the second coming of the Lord when he comes uh, back with his arm of judgment and uh, there is that battle of Armageddon that we have spoken of uh, in a few little glimpses along the way because uh, the way that Revelation has it sets up, there's different pieces of that throughout the Scripture Revelation And if you take those pieces and put them together, you might have then a somewhat fuller picture of this whole concept of the battle of Armageddon. Amen. But uh, just to give us an idea concerning this subject matter of the second coming, I pull a quote from John MacArthur uh, concerning this this topic of second coming. And he says, A total of 1,527 Old Testament passages alone refer to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are approximately 8,000 verses in the New Testament 
and 330 of those or about one out of every 25 verses directly refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, he says, next to the subject of faith, no subject is more often mentioned than the return of Christ. For every time the first coming of Christ is mentioned, the second coming is mentioned eight times. And the Lord himself referred to his coming 21 times, and over 50, 50 times we are exhorted to be ready for that great event. Amen. So second coming is not some... You know, it's not like some little thing that's mentioned one time in Scripture. It's mentioned many times uh, and many more times for that matter than his first coming is mentioned, his second coming. Amen. It opens up here in John in verse 11. He speaks <clears throat> that he saw the heaven open, which is not foreign terminology to us because John throughout the visions at times has seen the heaven open more than one time unto him. Uh, for the purpose of letting him see what's going on in heaven and also for the purpose of, at times, allowing him access unto the heavenlies. But this time, in particular, where the heaven is opened up unto John, it's not so that he can see necessarily, nor is it necessarily for the purpose that John would have access. But this time, it's for the purpose so that something can come out of heaven. Amen. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ coming out of heaven. The reason why heaven was opened this time. Revelation 6 and verse number 2 says, And I saw, we're going back here, Revelation 6 and verse 2. If you remember here, the first seal that was broken, it says, I, And I saw, and behold, a white horse. He that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. That's back Revelations 6 concerning the first seal which we understood the one that was riding on the white horse then to be the antichrist coming with bows but no arrows conquering if you will with peace and he so he comes forth really a false peace that we learn and understand he's on a white horse coming forth with a false peace amen to conquer the world he is the antichrist and so on the contrary, on the flip side of that then, we see the true Christ coming forth on a white horse in Revelation chapter 19. And he comes with judgment that's going to end with peace. It's going to end with peace for a long time. After, after all this takes place in the battle of Armageddon is that 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ where Satan is bound 1,000 years. So 1,000 years of peace that just kind of segues into a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. So we're talking about a peace that passes all understanding that's brought by, by Jesus Christ. So he comes upon a white horse as well. And so we understand once again that the Antichrist is really was just kind of mimicking or, or impersonating something he was not. And that was the true Christ trying to ride in on a white horse and proclaim some type of peace that was false. He was not the Christ. And Jesus, looking at Jesus' first coming and what will be his second coming, whenever Jesus came the first time, uh, Matthew 21 speaks about that he came on a donkey and the, the coat of a fowl of a donkey. When it came his first time, the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem, we see him riding on the donkey. They're throwing down those branches saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Some are casting down their garments in front of him as he is doing this. And this is his first approach unto Jerusalem. 
And that was great and tremendous and absolutely biblically true even to the Old Testament prophets for his first coming. But on his second return, when he comes the second time, not talking about the rapture now, but when it literally comes to the earth the second time, not going to be on a donkey anymore or the, the coat, the fowl of a donkey. He is going to be on a white horse. The first time he came, his purpose was to come to die. The second time he comes, his purpose is to come and reign. He's not coming to die. He's coming to have control. The first time his purpose was to come as the redeemer or to bring redemption to mankind. But when he comes the second time, his purpose for coming is to execute judgment upon the earth. All the redeeming, the time of the redeeming is over. It's said and done. And so the picture of this white horse, of him coming on a white horse, was something that would have been particular uh, to the Romans of the day in which John was pinning these words. They would understand somebody being on a white horse because all of those that were underneath the Roman Empire during the time of this writing could relate to this because a Roman general would come forth to war oftentimes riding on a white horse and he would be fully arrayed in all of his battle fatigues, if you will, and he would be leading his army into war, into battle, ready to engage in war. And so that's something that they commonly seen under the reign of the Roman Empire. And so this is something they could relate to, that Christ would be coming on a white horse. This is the general, this is the commander of the army. And he has, we'll see here in just a little bit, his fatigues, if you will, a vesture that is, uh, vesture that is dipped in blood on. And he is leading. The Bible says there are some people that are following him in linen robes there's armies that are following behind him so he has an army that is going out to war with him as well amen and so John begins or the angel begins to give some more descriptions about this one who is coming on the white horse some of the things that we've already related to before but one of the things that he tells us is that this is the one who is called faithful and true John has already penned these words before in Revelation chapter number 1 and verse 5, he told us, describing Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was the faithful witness. And so that, again, is being spoken of this one, kind of, you know, vaguely just a one that's riding on a white horse. So we know from that right away, we know who this is riding on the white horse. If there's any doubt about it, it's the faithful, it's the true, it's called the word of God. We know very clearly through those different descriptions who this is. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. John, even in the writing here, he's pinned these things down. He said the eyes, the eyes of this person upon the horse, his eyes are as a flame of fire. That's how he termed the eyes of the rider. And again, he had already spoken that in no uncertain terms about Jesus Christ in Revelation 1. Revelation 1.14, he said, His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire. So I think John's making a very direct connection here for us, lest there be any doubt of someone reading the Scripture, a direct connection. Everything that it seemed like he had already attributed Jesus Christ, he's attributing to this one that's riding on the horse because he wants us to know that this person on the horse, the one that is coming back, the one that is going to come and execute judgment and wield his sword, so to speak, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's important for us today. Again, I, I, I regurgitated this I don't know how many times, 
But everybody wants to look at the Lord Jesus Christ as nothing more but a man of peace and love and mercy and grace. And that, that's the lovey-dovey. And that's great. And, and probably to a great degree, that's what we embrace during this time period. But it's not always going to be that way. And so we need not take advantage or trample upon that mercy or grace because there is a day of judgment to follow all of that. Amen. So we do not have a license to trample upon that love or upon that grace. And so John draws that direct line that Jesus is the one who's coming on this horse, this white horse. It's the Lamb of God. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible depicts him here in chapter 19 that he doesn't just have a solitary crown upon his head. The Bible says that he has crowns upon his head. And so we ask ourselves the questions, where, where did he get all of these crowns where did all these crowns come from and I suppose there could be a few possibilities that we could look at number one and this is a secular literature reference but number one in the ancient world uh, this kind of goes back to Daniel but told me the philometer <laughs> oh boy you remember when I had that board and all those names and all that Bernice and okay anyways uh, but, but told me philometer uh, conquered a place called Antioch and whenever he did he set three crowns upon his own head one crown was for Asia the other two crowns was for Egypt in other words uh, the crowns that he had on, the he on his head represented the area of his rule because of what he had conquered what he'd done so uh, a literal secular uh, uh, reference for us is that whenever someone would conquer a new land he would acquire a, a, a crown for that area in the land that he conquered uh, for a biblical reference, uh, so we don't have to talk about Ptolemies, all right? For a biblical reference, uh, something that we might be able to relate to a little better, the scripture reads concerning David. That's a name we can put our hands around. David. David in scripture in 2 Samuel 12, David defeated the Ammonites. He went to war, he went to battle, he defeated the Ammonites. And this is what the scripture says there. The Bible says he, speaking of David, took their king's crown from off his head and the weight thereof was a talent of gold that's quite that's quite a crown right there folks <laughs> with the precious stones and it was set on David's head and he brought forth the spoil of the city in great abundance so David conquers the Ammonites and not only did he conquer them but kind of as a, a sign of his conquering that he's acquired this land and he's overcame the Canaanites he takes the crown that was on their king's head places it up on his head because he's the conqueror He's the one that has defeated them. So he has a, another crown upon his head for the area, the land, the people that he has defeated. So we have a secular reference and we have a biblical reference in Scripture that tells us that they would collect crowns oftentimes of whoever they defeated or whatever lands they defeated. That was something customary in the ancient world. And so the crowns that the scripture says that are upon the head of the one that's riding upon the white horse may be a good indication that the battle he's engaging in now is not his first rodeo. This ain't his first battle. He's done war before. He, he's fought before, and even more importantly than that, not only has he fought and warred before, but he's been successful at it. He's been successful at it. And you can only imagine how that might strike some fear in the hearts of whoever he's warring against. 
Because it's not a solitary crown here. We have many crowns. This is someone that's fought before. So, so he's, he's well equipped with knowing how to fight. But he's been successful in his fights as well. Uh, it's it's kind of like, you know, somebody going into the boxing ring against a champion rather than a never heard of nobody. Uh, that kind of changes the whole atmosphere whenever you're dealing with someone that's successful, amen, in that particular arena. And so Jesus Christ, he, he's won his battles. He's fought every battle he's fought, might I say. He's won his striking fear into their hearts because he's a successful fighter. He's not a loser at what he does. But another possibility, if we were to consider why he would have many crowns upon his heads is because perhaps he would acquire them from the 24 elders that we learned to represent the church back in Revelation chapter 4. Uh, the Greek word for the crowns may differ, but they cast down in Revelation 4.10, they cast down, the 24 elders cast down their crowns before the throne uh, of God. They cast down their crowns. And so it's, it may be a possibility that the gathering of those crowns that they cast down, then he has secured for himself. So perhaps, perhaps the crowns come from that representation, if you will, of the church that have cast their crowns down at the feet of the throne room. Amen. A further description, it's very descriptive, John is, concerning this one on the white horse. Further description of this one is that he's clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And so we ask ourselves the question, whose blood is on this vesture? There's blood on it. Whose blood is it? Is it his own blood? Or is it the blood of someone else? Or even more plainly, is it the blood of his enemies? Well, again, we need to lean on the fact this isn't his first battle. This isn't the first time that he went to warfare. And for that matter, we need to understand the context of the setting of Scripture here. He's not coming at this point as Redeemer. He's not coming at this point saying, oh, I'm going to save you. No, that opportunity has been really elastic, all right? He has stretched that as far as he could stretch it. He's coming right now as the judge. So it, it's highly probable right now that the blood that's on his vesture isn't the blood that he shed himself. It's the blood that he is shedding of his enemies past and even of enemies present. And I think an Old Testament scripture, Isaiah 63, that's prophetic of this time, may shed a little bit of light on that, that particular idea of his vesture being dipped in blood. The Bible says, who, in verse 1 of Isaiah 63, who is this that cometh from Edom? And I think we've looked at these scriptures before. With dyed garments from Bozrah, this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save, wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat. I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury. Their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. It seems to be a picture from Isaiah prophesying of a time of the blood-sprinkled garment, if you will, from past, no doubt, but also present 
judgments. Amen. And so his vesture is dipped in blood because he's already conquered some enemies and he is conquering some now. And no doubt the blood of those whom he conquers is going to even uh, douse or, or dye his garments just a little bit more red. And then they say his name is called the Word of God. John couldn't get any more, uh, and the angel couldn't get any more explicit. His name is called the Word of God. And in this simple statement, we have then the theme of the book of Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because a word represents something that is communicated. It's something that's communicated. The Word of God communicates God. In other words, even Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the expression of God. Jesus Christ, the man Jesus Christ, is the revelation of God. The man Jesus Christ is the communication of God. When a, a person reveals or a person explains themselves through words, I explain myself through and by words, reveal myself through and by words. Jesus Christ, the man Jesus Christ, is and was God's explanation to us of himself. No man had seen God at any time. God was a spirit. We have all these different things, but whenever Jesus Christ came, they could handle him, they could feel him, they could see him, they could hear him, and Jesus Christ was the Word of God. He was the revelation of God, the communication of God. He's the declaration of God. Everything that everybody may have scratched their head concerning God, when Jesus Christ came, they understood because Jesus Christ communicated who and what God was. Amen. And so we hear God speak through Jesus Christ. We see God act through Jesus Christ. The full expression of God's mind and will happened through Jesus Christ. I know, been wearing this scripture out, but John 1 and 1, let's wear it out. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Skip down to very famous 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we look at the scripture, how it's termed here. We beheld His glory. Who? Christ Jesus is this Word's glory. His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What's happening here? That word was made flesh, and when the word was made flesh, it starts communicating, declaring, explaining God to you and I. It bridges the gap. And so he said this one that's riding upon the horse, it is the word of God, the explanation of God, the declaration of God. Amen. The explanation of God right here upon the white horse. Verse number 14, Revelation 19 and verse 14, the Bible says, and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. The Bible says, and the armies, plural, the armies. Well, number one, who's going to be following him when it comes back to this earth? That's a part of those armies. Number one, the bride of Christ that he, he shed his precious blood for, they will be coming back to the earth, amen, following him. There may be others 
Some speculate, neither here nor there. You can turn to Jude. There's a scripture in Jude 1 also in Genesis where Enoch spoke of it, of how there'd be ten thousands and ten thousands of his angels that would be coming. Amen. Not only that, if you remember the saints of the ages, even those uh, like some Jews that had been martyred even during times of the tribulation, if you read Revelation 7 and Revelation 14, you see them in a period in time before the throne room, and they were given white robes as well. And so among this, this army's plurality, if you will, of people that follow him, those could perhaps be some of those, undoubtedly the church, but those could be some of those that would come back and follow him clothed in fine linen, clean and white, following him upon the horses, if you will. Because we know just a few verses concerning the church, we know just a few verses earlier, like verse number eight, we know that it was granted unto her that she would be given fine linen, which was the righteousness, righteousness of the saints that we just looked at last week. So just a little few verses earlier than that, she got her fine linen, amen, and she's going to come back with him as a part of those armies. But here's the interesting thing. Though these armies follow him, they are simply spectators. There's no weapons of war or such that are described, swords or spears that are found among them. As a matter of fact, in the scripture here, the only one we see fighting is Christ. The only one we see fighting is Christ. We do not see these others fighting. It's almost as though they serve as an entourage to his majesty. Amen. Amen. There's no, no weapon of war. Amen. And as a matter of fact, the picture is so sharp concerning the Lord that he's conquering, the Bible says, with a sharp sword that comes out of his mouth. Now, sharp sword that comes out of his mouth. Now, that, that's a nice picture you can latch on to. Now, I don't know if there's going to be literally a sharp sword coming out of his mouth, okay? Uh, I think that's a good, good, good symbol. That, 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 I don't know if we necessarily look at that literal, but there is a good, good word picture there for us, a sharp sword coming out of his mouth because with his words... Christ always if in the beginning of time God could just use simple words the words of his mouth to create things it's like now in the end of time the beginning he was able to create with words in the end of time by the same measure he can destroy with his mouth he can destroy with words and that makes really perfect sense to me if he had the ability to cause, uh, you know, the, the, the seed to be there just by speaking and animals to come just by speaking, he'd have the ability to take care of those things as well by saying, no more. I mean, if he said, let the light shine, he'd be able to say, let it be dark. You know what I'm saying? Just by the words of his mouth, being able to destroy with his mouth on the same token how he could create. For that matter, he has given us glimpses through the word of God. Uh, scripture, for instance, like Proverbs 18, 21, where he said, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now, we know how that relates to us in our everyday living, but think of it on the level of the great God Almighty. It's not just a figurative a phrase then, it's a literal phrase for him. Death and life is in the power of his tongue. Born, grave. You know, just by the power of his tongue. Amen. And so whenever all this is taking place and, and he's wielding that 
sharp sword, that picture for us, those words are being spoken, amen, that he's even smiting nations, the Bible says. He's ruling with a rod of iron. He's treading in that, that wine press with the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God and talking about King of kings and Lord of lords, you know. And, and you know, our minds can wrap around that he's the king of all kings. I know there's a lot of people term kings and maybe lords, but he is the cream of the crop. He's the top of the rung of the ladder concerning all of them. And with these people that are being destroyed by the sword of the word of his mouth, this is not the final judgment for them. This is not the final judgment for them. They're executed at this point of time, but they'll be judged later. They're executed right now. They're slain. As a matter of fact, if you think of it, they're going to be slain twice by his word, if you think of it. Because right now, because of the sword of the word of his mouth, they're executed. But later, at the great white throne judgment, they're going to be judged by the word of God. So they're executed by the word and they'll be judged. They're kind of getting a duh. It's a two-edged sword. Does not scripture say it? It's a two-edged sword. And so they're being executed by the word and they're going to be judged by the word. So first, the enemies of Christ, they're physically killed, if you will, uh, at his second coming here. That's the first death. That's the death that puts you in the grave, known as Hades, that oftentimes is, 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 is uh, translated hell in the scripture, Hades. It's the abode of the dead. It's where you go to die. But they will be judged a thousand years later. Mm-hmm. The millennium kingdom, we have all this millennium, this peace upon the earth. A thousand years later, though, the enemies of Christ are going to be judged, amen, at God's word before the great white throne judgment. And at that moment, they're taken from Hades, if you will, or as it's interpreted, hell, which is the abode of the dead, and they will then be thrown into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. And the Bible says in Revelation 20, 12, that that is the second death. So they have their first death, talking about those that are still alive during this time at the end of the tribulation. They meet their first death by the word of his mouth, and they meet his, uh, their second death by the word, if you will, of his mouth, whether it be written or spoken. It's still his word. Amen. In verse 17 of this chapter, there's an angel of the Lord. They're making a call. Come to supper. But it has nothing to do with the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's really two suppers that takes place in chapter 19. You have the marriage supper of the Lamb, then you have this other supper called the supper of the great God. At least that's how it's kind of verbalized here in Scripture. It's the supper of the great God. And so there's a call to the supper. We've seen the marriage supper of the Lamb earlier. Amen. And now it's the supper of this great God. Earlier at the marriage supper of the Lamb, they are calling for guests, namely human beings, all right, to the supper to eat, amen, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But now the angel is calling, not for human beings, but calling for the fowls of the air to come to the supper of the great God. Wow, what a contrast. It, and I don't know everything. I don't know everything's going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I know every time we have a potluck, someone eats something good, so that's going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So I, you know, <laughs> I don't know what's going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I don't know if it's going to be, you know, roasted lamb. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But th this is just total speculation. If it is animals, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, people are coming to eat the animals. At the supper of the great God, the animals are coming to eat the people. What a contrast. And so uh, here we have, though, the supper of the great God. Both of these suppers are hosted by God. But, again, dramatic differences between the guests and the food. 
So you know you've shown up at the wrong place <laughs> if you're the meal rather than the eater. <laughs> All right? Amen. <clears throat> and so they come, and they're, they're, they're vastly different, vastly different. Amen. And the Bible says those in Deuteronomy 28, those who are slaughtered for the supper, they, they share kind of in a curse that's all the way back from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28 and verse 26, it says, And thy carcass shall be meat unto the fowls of the air, unto the beasts of the earth, and no man shall fray them away. You're not going to be able to dismiss them or get them away. It's going to come. Now, this is just a question. I just found this kind of interesting. And if you do, great. If you don't, don't tell me. But nevertheless, all these fowls of the air that's being called to come to eat on if we're talking about this battle of Armageddon where we've seen one other time that it would take days even for burial, you know, if, if, that's a big if, if Ezekiel 39 relates to that, if. Great burial. They even said the weapons, even in that chapter in Ezekiel 39, if that relates to Armageddon. There's a lot of controversy and we could talk about that, but we're not. They even said even the weapons of people that are involved in that day, it takes seven years just to burn the weapons what's said so we're talking about a lot of people involved so if that's so you're going to have a lot of fowl to pick at the carcasses of that amount of people i mean i know vultures are constantly flying around looking for the next dead thing but even it says here in the very last verse of the chapter that we're studying that the fowls were filled the fowls all the fowls are called they're going to be fooled they're not going to desire no more. So we're talking about a lot of carcass, a lot of meat. And so we may ask, stuff, where are all these fowls coming from? Now, this is just purely, purely just interesting. Again, if it's not interesting to you, don't tell me. But it was to me. The, in Israel, the Israeli Air Force, from my understanding, the Israeli Air Force constantly fly over Israel constantly from east to west, north to south, they always have planes in the air that's traveling above the nation of Israel. It's a matter of security for them. They've done this for years. And it don't, from my understanding, for instance, east to west, Israel's not real wide. That it only takes like a minute and a half for a, a fighter jet to go, but they just fly back and forth. It's a matter of security for them. And from my understanding, the, Israel, the Israeli pilots more Israeli pilots have been killed by birds than by enemies throughout their history. And the reason being is that the birds, when they migrate every year from the north to the south, they migrate through the land of Israel. And the reason why is because Israel has food for them in their migration. Because to the east, there's nothing but barren desert. And to the west, there is nothing but sea. And so they typically go through, this is scientific study, they typically go through Israel because Israel provides food. Number two, Israel has what's called in science thermals, which is nothing more but a column of air that rises up that makes the birds that are migrating from the north to the south when they hit the land of Israel because of those thermals and that rising air they don't have to expend energy flapping they can just soar across Israel and so throughout the year at different times when birds migrate at different times there can be millions upon millions of birds that are flying over top 
of Israel. Matter of fact, scientists have studied that because this has been a big problem for any airplane flying through that zone. They've had birds come straight through a cockpit and decapitate their, their pilots or get in their props of the engines and just take down planes. And so scientists studied it because all these birds, God just made birds such a wonderful way. They fly the same pattern every year. They fly at the same altitude every year and they fly at the same time every year. In so much that those that fly over Israel, even American planes, they have given instructions about at what altitude to fly at what time of year because birds are migrating at that particular time. So I said all that to say this, whenever he calls for the fowls of the air, honey, they are very well acquainted with the country of Israel. All that to say that. Now, that may not have interested you, but it did me. They're very acquainted with the country of Israel. And look, there, are, there isn't, here in Scripture, there isn't any flesh that's off limits for the fowl all right they, they can have they can have i know it's i'm not a cannibal okay but if you're thinking of it in terms that you can have the high-end meat or the low-end meat uh and what are you saying brother mcgee as the bible says that they ate the meat of kings i call that the high end you know the kings and the captains, mighty men, horses even. So there's an animal. Horsemen, all men it says, free, bond, small, great. High in meat, low in meat, didn't matter. Nothing is off, nothing is off the menu for the fowls whenever it comes to this day. All right. And so in these verses of Scripture, not only then are we seeing in the second coming of Christ, but we're also seeing other terms and glimpses of the battle of Armageddon that we've looked at other places in the book of Revelation that's spoken other places. Amen. The Bible says in Revelation 19, 19, it says, and I saw the beast, <clears throat> and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. Again, this is, this is, a, this is a good description of the battle of Armageddon. If you'll remember... There had been a, a learning of all the nations and kings of the earth to this place, Megiddo, the, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, all the other terms that it's spoken of. They were gathering them together, and here they are as it's making it spoken right here. They've come together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. The army, though, didn't have no weapons, didn't even have to fight because their general had a sword, so to speak that came from his mouth that took care of business. And so here they are. Now, the beast, the beast, of course, is the Revelation 13 Antichrist. The beast, the first beast that is spoken of in Revelation 13. As a matter of fact, in the next verse, verse number 20, it'll make mention of the false prophet, which was the second beast of Revelation chapter number 13. The beast's cohort, so to speak, his supporter. And so these armies had gathered together. Again, remember, there, there were evil spirits, the Bible said, as frogs. You remember that? I think that was Revelation 13. Evil spirits as as frogs. If not, it might be Revelation 16. Revelation 16, check that. Revelation 16. And the Bible says that one came from the dragon, one came from the beast, one came from the false prophet. And so they came and they allured all these armies into this particular location. And the Bible says right here, and this is a glorious time, amen, for believers in the church, that he would take the beast, the Antichrist that is, and the false prophet, and the Bible says, and he would cast them alive. Cast them alive. Verse number 20. Cast them alive into the lake of fire. There's no killing. There is no killing of the beast or the false prophet. They are cast alive 
into the lake of fire. They are the only two individuals in the history of the Bible that will ever be cast alive directly into the lake of fire. Everybody else will meet the first death and that will be their second death. For them, they are cast alive into the lake of fire. And once again, let someone want to just look at this idea of the lake of fire and hell and say, well, it's just a temporary place or it's a purgatory. You can make things right and get better or it's not going to happen and last forever. Hold on, wait a minute. The beast and the false Christ is put or false prophet is put into the lake of fire right here. In Revelation 20, verse 10, a thousand years later, when the devil, after his thousand years of being bound, is cast into the lake of fire, the Bible says where the beast and the false prophet are, it's not like they're incinerated, it's all said and done, poof, over, a thousand years later, they're still there. Amen. They're still there. And rest assured, they are. Any human being that goes there, will be still suffering the torment of the smoke that goes up forever and ever after 1,000 years the beast of false prophet they're still there when Satan joins them after that final rebellion if you'll stand with me and I'll close the scripture kind of just closes it up lest there be any doubt that basically in verse 21 any remnant anyone lingering they'll be slain with the sword of his mouth, the one that sits on that white horse. Those fowls are going to be filled, going to be filled with the flesh of all those, of all those that have been taken. And a thousand years later, judgment's going to come up on them before the white throne judgment. They'll enter into that second death. Now next week, we will enter to chapter number 20. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.